Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we come back to our study here in the Sermon on the Mount. And let me begin this morning just by reading our verse that we'll be looking at in detail this morning. Matthew 7 verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, we recognize that, we ought to recognize that as what is commonly referred to as the golden rule. It is um, perhaps looked at by many as a little bit random in terms of where it finds itself in this passage right after Jesus has been talking in the preceding verses about asking, seeking, knocking, uh, that kind of request of God and Right before a discussion in verses 13 and 14 about entering in the narrow gate and being aware of the wide gate. But when you take note especially of the connection or the connecting word here, so, or in some translations, therefore, it even draws more curiosity about what Jesus is exactly saying here. He is inferring something. He's reaching back to the previous context to draw a conclusion. But it's not just the preceding verses that he's talking about. He isn't just talking about asking, seeking, knocking and such. We know that because of the particular phrase that he uses here, the law and the prophets. We've seen it before. In fact, all the way back at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is what you call an inclusio. Uh, or a bracket, or a bookend, or however you want to describe it. This is the closing out, if you will, of an entire discussion and wrapping everything in between into one sort of tight package. It's, it marks the beginning and the end of a discussion about a unified subject, a unified topic. And what is that unified subject, and what is the unified topic? Well, it's very simple. It's the law and the prophets, Jesus is talking to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount about the law and the prophets. And he wants you to understand what the law and the prophets are all about. What is their true meaning? How are you to interpret them? How are you to apply them? And he opened up in chapter 5, verse 17, talking about how he didn't come to abolish any of the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill them. And now he closes out near the end of his sermon with this sort of summary statement about what this is really all about. The law and the prophets are summarized in this one statement that you should do to others as you would them do to you. Now, this is critical for us, just as it was for time, uh, those in the times of Christ, because... So many people misunderstand the law of God. 
And in misunderstanding the law of God, they misunderstand the righteousness that God is after. And in misunderstanding the righteousness that God's after, they misunderstand where they stand before God. And in misunderstanding all that, they really misunderstand who God is. They misunderstand His His law, they misunderstand His righteousness, they misunderstand His love. All of those things are things that Jesus is confronting in this Sermon on the Mount. All of those things is what uh, sort of is the big picture standing behind all of this. All of those things are why Jesus is saying everything that He's saying to you in these verses. Because as, as Paul will later say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, certain persons get carried off, he says, in vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There are so many people who prop themselves up, who set themselves up to want to lecture, to want to discuss, to want to assert things about God, about His law, about His love, or whatever it is. And Paul says they have no idea what they're talking about. They can have all the confidence in the world, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus, of course, is confronting this throughout the sermon. He's talking particularly about Israel's religious leaders who had done just that kind of thing. They had set themselves up as teachers, as instructors about God, about His righteousness, about His law. And Jesus opens up in Matthew 5, 17 saying, look, I've come and I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to do away with the law. Some people may draw that conclusion whenever they hear Jesus speak, whenever they see His life. They may draw that conclusion because He doesn't line up with whatever their view of the law is. But he tells them in no uncertain terms, that is not at all what I'm interested in doing. I am not interested in abolishing the law. I'm interested actually in fulfilling the law. In fact, he goes straight from that discussion in 17, 18, 19, and 20 into a discussion in verse 21 saying, you've heard that it was said by those of old, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said you shouldn't murder, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother is liable of judgment. And really beyond that, and throughout the entire sermon, all of this is about correcting our understanding, our misunderstanding of the law or our misunderstanding of righteousness. Jesus isn't opposed to the law. He didn't come to do away with the law. He affirms in every way. In fact, he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all has been accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, don't don't at all misinterpret any of this. Not the smallest little part of the law, not the most most sort of unnoticeable jot or tittle. 
Will any of it pass away? It will all be viable. It will all be authoritative. It will all be instructive. It will all be profitable. It will all remain. But your false perceptions of it will not. Your misunderstandings of it will not. They're going to pass away as quickly as you pass away. They're going to fade away like the flowers of the field, but the word of the Lord is going to remain forever. So it's critical for us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because this really summarizes the entire sermon. In fact, it summarizes the entirety of Jesus' teaching, and as we'll see, it summarizes the entirety of the whole Bible. What he says in this one verse, in fact, I was kind of wondering, could I sort of, you know, spend three or four weeks on this? Because this is the entirety, you understand, of what Jesus teaches, and the entirety of the whole Bible, the law and the prophets. In this one verse. And Jesus gives us all of this stuff because my tendency and your tendency and the tendency of so many people is to misunderstand all of this stuff, to misunderstand Christ, to misunderstand the law, to misunderstand righteousness, and to misunderstand God. And so he's given us all of these things. To unlock for us the true depth of understanding of what God's law demands, what it says about us, and what it says about righteousness. And Matthew seven twelve then is the key, if you will, to help us unlock all of that. It helps us really in two ways. It summarizes the righteousness taught by Jesus Christ himself and summarizes the righteousness taught by the law. We can look firstly at the first part of that, how this statement summarizes the righteousness taught by Christ. That word so or that word therefore points back, as I said, to the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here giving this this overarching principle to wrap up everything that he said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also To them. Now, there's a fair number of people who believe that this is not anything profound at all. This isn't even unique to Jesus. A lot of people have uh, tried to make the claim that this is, in fact, the same thing that is taught in every other religion around the world, and many of them which preceded Christ. In fact, Uh, they would make the claim that Christ himself borrowed this principle from other spiritual leaders. They would say that many people have taught this when in fact what they have taught in one form or another is what is known as the silver rule, not the golden rule. That is to say, they taught the same kind of principle, 
but with a negative bent. And there's a big difference. They taught the form of the silver rule, not doing to others what you would not want them to do to you. For example, right around the time of Christ, somewhere at the turn of the uh, eras, there was a rabbi, famous rabbi named Hillel, who once questioned by a Gentile about the meaning of the law, he summarized the law as this. He says, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law and all the rest is commentary, he said. Even 400 years earlier, in a piece of Jewish literature known as the book of Tobit, it said, that which you hate for yourself, do not do to others. Even outside of Judaism, this principle was widely recognized. As early as 600 B.C., the Greek philosopher Hesiod wrote, Love your friends, visit those who visit you, give to him who gives, but not if he does not. We give to generous persons, but not Uh, But no one gives, he says, to the one who is stingy. 400 B.C., Sophocles, the Greek philosopher says, one favor begets another favor. In other words, this is a kind of proverbial wisdom, the silver rule. It's been around for a long time. Uh, another idea that was common among the Greeks uh, was to say one hand washes the other. In our own vernacular, we would say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's a principle of reciprocity. Give something, get something. A kind of exchange of services or obligation. And you can literally find it everywhere, in every culture, in every time period, this basic idea. It was woven particularly into the fabric of Greek and Roman societies. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, the word for favor and the word for thanks is the same word. The word charis. You couldn't even always distinguish between when you're saying thanks and when you're doing a favor. You did something for someone, there was an obligation on them to do something in return. This is the sort of social fabric of Greek and Roman society. This was what they knew as a quid pro quo in the Latin. They didn't like to put it in sort of binding terms. They turned their noses up against any kind of formal contract or written obligations, but it was always understood, this idea of reciprocity. The Jews were no different. This kind of self-oriented self-concern was just as alive among them. This kind of calculated utilitarianism, the idea that governs Every action based on how it affects, how it benefits, how it comforts, how it progresses and advances your concerns. Even in the words of Rabbi Hillel, it is really all about avoiding personal 
injury, personal harm, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. In other words, all of this is nothing more than self-love expressed in different forms. It is naturalistic pragmatism that simply calculates the best way to get the best product in the result back towards yourself. The silver rule. Focused on goals and purposes that are finite and limited because they're focused on yourself. They generate the best result for your life in the end. But you see what Jesus is calling for is fundamentally different than this. The golden rule that Jesus is teaching stretches far beyond the silver rule. Because what Jesus is calling for here is utter abandonment of self-concern. The giving of yourself for the aid and the benefit and the comfort and the joy of others. Whatever you wish others would do for you, do also to them. This is not a strategy for self-return. It's not a strategy for self-protection. It's a call to utter self-sacrifice. Now, if you have any doubt about that, you can look with me over to Luke chapter 6, where Luke also gives his account of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, in verse 31. This is what he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners... Lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is directly confronting this idea of reciprocity. He's directly undermining all of this. He's saying, I'm calling you to a kind of consideration for other people that is not calculating, that is not self-centered, that is not all about advancing your own concerns and your own comforts and your own protection, your own security. It's not about getting anything back. In fact, what he's telling you is that when you look out at the world, you're going to see and you're going to hear a lot of discussion about love. Everyone's going to be talking about love. They're going to talk about those that they love. They're going to talk about the ways that they're loved. They're going to talk about the feelings of love. There's going to be all of this discussion about love. But what Jesus is telling you is that there is a different kind of love. It is a love that isn't defined by this world. It isn't, it isn't shown, it isn't demonstrated by the world. And God is calling you to a kind of love that is distinguishable, that is distinct, that, 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 that ascends above all of that stuff. In fact, the very next verse, what does he say? Love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now listen, this is so important for you to understand this. When Jesus is summarizing what He's saying about righteousness, when He's summarizing everything He's saying about the law of God, when He's saying what He's saying about God and about His righteousness and about His love and about His law, He's saying that the fundamental summary of all of this is the love of God which gives and expects nothing in return. He gives, he's kind to ungrateful and even to evil people. And this is the very definition of love. You say, well, wait a second. Hey, but, but when God loves us, we give him praise, we give him honor, we give him all that stuff. Yes, in fact, that's what we ought to do because he is absolutely worthy of that. But understand what he's saying here. He did not love us because we would return those things. His love is so pure, is so undefiled, that it loves even the people who do not love in return. And the benefit that you can expect when you love in this way is simple. Nothing. Except that you will be known as sons of the Most High. In other words... It isn't finite. It isn't limited in some sort of calculated, pragmatic sort of reciprocity, you know, doing to other people so that you can get back, scratching their back so they'll scratch yours. That is not at all what this is about. This is about an otherworldly kind of love. Look with me over for a moment at Romans chapter 5 because this is perhaps the greatest definition of love. Paul says in Romans 5, verse verse 6, and this really flows out of a discussion in Romans 5 about how God's love is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us when we believe in Christ. But he says in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person he would even dare to die. You understand, he's now talking about naturalistic love. He's now talking about worldly kind of love. He's saying that there is a kind of, of, of uh, there's, a, there's a perception of virtue even among the world where people would give some sort of sacrifice for something that they deem to be worthy of that sacrifice. But God shows or God demonstrates or God illustrates or God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, while we were still rebellious, while we were still while we were still defiant, he died for us. It's a different kind of love, you understand? This isn't the same principle of reciprocity that you find in every other religion. This isn't the same principle of reciprocity that you find in the world. This isn't the same kind of love 
that the world likes to boast about. In all of its great acts of supposed heroism and, uh, and benevolence and kindness and philanthropy, uh, philanthropy, this isn't the same kind of love. You understand that? It's supernatural. It's spiritual. It is eternal. And it is what distinguishes not only the golden rule from the silver rule, it is what distinguishes true righteousness from self-righteousness. And it's what distinguishes the teaching of Christ from the teaching of men. It's what distinguishes Christianity from all the philosophies and religions of the world. This is what distinguishes uh, the, the, this, this old-time principle of Favor begetting favor. And it becomes the greatest summary of righteousness that you could find anywhere. So Jesus is saying, this is how it's all summed up. This is is the way I could sum up everything that I've been saying to you in this sermon. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. This sin... It not only defines true righteousness, it defines sin. It defines all the ways that you are unloving. All the ways that you fail to meet God's standard of righteousness. All the ways that you neglect. The silver rule, the wisdom of man might tell you to avoid hurting others, but it will not compel you to love your enemies. To do good to them, to lend to them. It will not call you in all situations to set aside self-concern and any thought of sort of reciprocity and to take on the burdens and the cares of others. In other words, Jesus' golden rule, his standard of righteousness here, demands of you a kind of love that will not allow you to withdraw from the pain and the hurt of people around you into this sort of self-protected, insulated shelter where you just simply avoid offending other people. It doesn't allow you to insulate yourself against potential hurt by others by not hurting them. It calls you to go outside of yourself to pour yourself out into the lives of others. Others. First John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, this isn't really all about just not doing to someone something that you don't want them to do to you. That is, that's the negative side of that. Well, what he's saying here is, on the positive side, you go outside of yourself, you put yourself on the line, you put your security on the line, you put yourself at risk, and you give to others in their moments of need. Now, when you recognize this, You begin to recognize everything that Christ has been saying. And you recognize that the righteousness Jesus teaches extends so far beyond the kind of self-concern, kind of self-love 
the kind of love of self-praise that governs your life every day. It goes all beyond your naturalistic tendency towards love that might be dressed up sometimes in religious garb. It might be dressed up sometimes in religious duties week in and week out. But ultimately, it is still consumed with your own desires, your own efforts. And the righteousness that Jesus teaches penetrates beyond all that. It goes beyond the veneer of your religious life, the veneer of your self-righteousness, the veneer of your so-called morality. It penetrates beyond that and it uncovers the heart of sin in the self-centered roots of your soul. See, some of you, even the way that you think about God and His love is self-centered. You like to sing about love. We sang a lot of songs this morning about love. You like to think about God's love only insofar as it aligns with your definition of love. As long as what God means by love is the same thing that you mean by love, and as long as God is loving you the way that you would define loving you, then you're happy to sing about God's love. But take for a moment, if God asks you to do something that you do not initially want to claim as love, and you have a problem. You have a self-centered view of God, a self-centered definition of God's love, because you, at your very heart, are a worshiper of self. But Jesus uncovers all of that throughout this sermon and when this one principle comes to the end. In fact, you may remember this story where Jesus had a similar kind of interaction. A lawyer comes to him in Luke chapter 10 and puts him to the test. Wants to test God, wants to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Spot on. He's he's listened to a lot of Sunday school lessons. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But see, that's not it. This guy was really not about defining himself by God and God's love. He was about justifying himself by his own love. Luke 10 says, the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let me know, how can I calculate this? What are the boundaries? What are the limits so I can can sort of fill all that stuff in so that I can sort of make my case and my resume for my love? Jesus tells a story. A, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him 
and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This could have very well been Hillel. Do not harm, do not do any harm to other people that you wouldn't want done to you. I mean, he was fulfilling that law of reciprocity. He was doing no harm. He didn't do any damage to this guy that was laying in the ditch. But he just walked on by. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he set him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, Him who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. See, this is what Christ is talking about. This is the kind of love that he's talking about. It's not a love that's calculating about your own personal sort of benefit, your own personal concern. It's a love that goes outside of yourself and your own sort of uh, uh, calculations for reciprocity and reciprocal return. And it pours yourself out for those who are around you. The Samaritan poured himself out. He was someone who, by the way, was considered a racial and ethnic enemy of the Jews. He was someone who, from the Jews' perspective, would have been under God's judgment. And this Samaritan comes and he sees the man in his distress and he responds with love and compassion, with sympathy and real acts of service. He, he realizes the plight that this man is in, he realizes and he assesses what his needs are. He thinks about what the implications would be if he were to remain in his condition and in his state. He refuses to leave him there. He goes out of his way to not only pull him out of the ditch, but to load him on his own animal, to use his own oil and his own wine to treat his wounds to take his own time. He stays overnight at the end to make sure that the guy's taken care of. He uses his own money. He tells the innkeeper, here's two denarii. I'll even pay more. He's the epitome of 1 John 3. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. And he doesn't close his heart. This is one in whom the love of God abides. James says in James 2.15, your brother or sister was without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet do not give him what is necessary for his body. What use is that? What use is that? That is false compassion. That is false love. And James goes on to say it's dead faith. It's faith without works, and it is dead. People may not literally say, be warmed and be filled. They might just come by and say, 
trust in God. I'll pray for you. But they do nothing practically to come alongside and to bear the burdens of that person. The point of all this that Jesus is making is that true righteousness puts such a demand on this young attorney that he could not possibly fulfill it if he wanted to. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is that God puts such a demand on you in all of these ways to demonstrate the kind of love that he's talking about that you could not fulfill it if you wanted to. It's beyond human capacity. It's beyond naturalistic means. The only way you're going to be able to do it is if you are, as Romans 5 says, filled with the love of God yourself, which only comes as He pours out His Holy Spirit. Romans 5, God pours out into our hearts His own love through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This has been the message of the Sermon on the Mount all the way through. This kind of righteousness does not come from religion. This kind of righteousness does not come from your own personal virtue. It doesn't come from your own personal efforts. It doesn't arise out of the world. It isn't natural to humankind. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the most religious people of that day, the scribes and Pharisees. And when you understand the righteousness that God demands, and God demands this selfless kind of giving, not just avoiding offending other people, but actively seeing the needs around you, meeting those needs, when you realize that you can never generate this kind of righteousness on your own, that you'll never be able to come up with it from your own personal effort, your own personal devotion, your own personal religion, that you can never perfectly care and never perfectly love people to that level, it will turn your heart to the one source that can, which is God. He's the only one who has this kind of love. Which ultimately takes us back to Matthew 7 and the second point that Jesus has been making throughout the sermon and he makes for us in this verse that this kind of love and this kind of, uh, of uh, uh, care for others summarizes the righteousness taught by the law. It summarizes the righteousness taught by the law. Whatever you wish others to do to you, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Big picture, you remember back in 517, when Jesus has already said this, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's now beginning to explain to us how that comes about. A whole sermon has been about fulfilling the law and the prophets. Not doing away with them, but fulfilling them. We don't have time to go back and retrace everything we said back in that verse, but we noted how the word fulfill, which we typically use in reference to predictions about the future, we talk about prediction and fulfillment, also has the idea of design and fulfillment. 
And this is the way Jesus is using the word here. He's talking about how love ultimately fulfills the design of the law. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law, that is all the Old Testament law, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul there's not talking about prediction fulfillment. He's talking about design and fulfillment. It's fulfilled in the sense that it is brought to completion. Its purpose, its mission is brought to its final end. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we understand the law in the Old Testament was filled with all kinds of individual restrictions and individual mandates and individual uh, sort of codes of conduct and all those things. And for a lot of people, they interpret all of that stuff as somehow onerous and burdensome and oppressive and all of those things. And so when they get to the New Testament and when they get to talking about Christ, they assume that there must be some sort of conflict that's going on. You, you have this colliding of two concepts in their mind, the Old Testament law, which they associate with oppression, with burden, with maybe even some sort of judgmentalism, and then the New Testament, which they associate with love and compassion and kindness. And so they assume that when you get to the New Testament, it collides with the Old Testament and something has to be done away with. So what is obviously done away with is the law. In fact, I've heard whole sermons that sort of make the point that in order to be compassionate, that you have to be inconsistent. That you have to compromise somewhere. That you have to sort of undo something in your theology and something in your biblical understanding in order to show compassion because compassion is what overrules everything. But Jesus, you understand, is saying something completely different. He's not saying that love overrules the law. He's not saying that love does away with the law. He says that love actually fulfills the law. It actually completes the design of the law. The law, in other words, is not anti-love. The law wasn't given in order to sort of eradicate the idea of love. In fact, the law is the complete definition of love. And Jesus is saying that this now, doing to others as you would want them to do for you, is the exhaustive definition of the law. And the prophets. This is what they are designed to do. And Jesus came so that they can fulfill their design. Romans 13, 9. The commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment. Paul can't list them all. He just says all of them. You take take those and you kind of use them as representative or any other commandment. All of them that are there. All of them, he says, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Verse 10, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you thought that God's law is somehow opposed to love or demonstrates some sort of conflict with love, what really is happening is that it is demonstrating, first of all, you have an incorrect understanding of the law. You see, that's what Jesus has been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's been correcting their misunderstanding of the law. But maybe more profoundly than that is it demonstrates that you have a misunderstanding of love. You have allowed your personal definition of love to become that dominant definition or you have allowed the concepts of the world and whatever it thinks of as love. And remember, we talked about this in Luke 6. The world speaks plenty about love. It talks about sort of this mutual love that they have for one another, just getting together and loving one another. They they, they sing songs about love. They make movies about love. They talk about it all the time. But it is fundamentally different than this kind of love. It is a self-centered love. You understand? It is a love that is all about personal benefit, personal gratification, sort of personal comforts. And in doing that, listen to this, it is another expression of sin. The world may call it love, but it is self-love. The world may call it love, but it is narcissism. Jesus says, this is love, and it fulfills God's law. And you can't have this sort of self-centered idea where you, you understand, well, you know, this is all about love. Jesus says it's all about love. You know, the Bible's all about love. The law's all about love. So I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to kind of figure out, I'm going to listen to all the voices out there. I'm going to figure out what love is. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to begin to shine the light of my new definition of love on all the corners of the Bible. And I'm going to figure out what parts of the Bible are loving and which parts of the Bible are unloving. You are not the definition of love. You understand that? Your love is not the definition of love. Do you know whose love is the definition of love? The one who loved his enemies. The one who loved sinners. The one who came and gave himself on the cross when we were not even asking for it. One who reached into our darkness and our lostness and our confusion and our self-destruction and penetrated through not only with deeds and acts of kindness, but with words of truth and calls to repentance. You're not the definition of love. God's the definition of love. You understand that? 
And his law is the definition of love. So it's not on us to take our concept of love and then to begin to look at all the areas of the Bible that we think might be loving or might be unloving. What our job is to do is to take God's law, to take God's book, to take God's word and shine it into our life to see all the ways that we're unloving. You understand that? This is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to do away with any of that stuff. He didn't come to do away with one jot or one tittle. He came to confront you with your fundamental pride and selfishness. So that you can understand what true righteousness is. And the fact that you do not have it. You are self-righteous, maybe. You are outwardly moralistic, maybe. You are religiously proud, maybe. But when God begins to define things, which He does, you're not righteous. You're not righteous. Now, here's the good news is that Jesus came not only to shine the light into your self-centered, prideful heart, but he also came to change your prideful, self-centered heart. He came not only to talk to us about what real love is, he came to fulfill it. He came not only to clarify what the design of God's love is. He came to construct it. This was the promise that was given in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, because I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. See, Jesus came not to abolish God's love and God's law, He didn't come to replace God's standards of righteousness with human standards of love and righteousness. He didn't come to scrap God's old design of holiness and to instill whatever design that you think might be really better. He came with the blueprint. And he says... He's going to fulfill the blueprint. 
He'll put his spirit within you. He'll write his love on your heart. He'll put all of that inside of you and he'll forgive all of the selfish, self-centered ways that have destroyed your peace, your joy, your life. He'll do all of that by wiping away your sins and wiping away your guilt and giving you a new heart. That's the sermon. That's the big picture. That's what he wants you to understand. That's how he confronts you. And his call is always the same. Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And you'll find rest for your souls. That's the love of Christ that he offers to us. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here this morning and you need the love of Christ, you see your self-centered life. You hear the confrontation of God and you want to repent. If you're here this morning and God's working in your life, I invite you to come see us in our welcome center down the hall to the right when we're done. We'd love to have the opportunity to share with you the love of God from the scripture and how his love transforms us by his grace and mercy. Father, we're grateful for your word, so thankful for this truth. We pray that it would be be heavy on our hearts, molding and shaping us after the love of God. There is no love like yours. There is none like you, O God. No one who loves like you. No one so kind as you. No one so generous and gracious as you. And Lord, we gladly yield ourselves to your love. And we place ourselves under your care, saying we want to be loving like you. Would you do that work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.